This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. When military parents fulfill occupational duties, their children and families can face many challenges, including moves, changes in family routines, and dealing with trauma or stress reminders. There may be times when these challenges can be overwhelming, particularly if a parent is dealing with the effects of post-traumatic stress and or injuries. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with an organization that has more than 20 years of research with children and families facing challenges and adversity in a variety of settings. They've provided services to thousands of participants at dozens of sites, and they continue to expand their services. They focus on one thing, which is resilience. Now, that may not sound like a lot, but it is tremendously important. And over the course of this part of today's show, we're going to find out exactly why it's so important and what it is that military families can do to incorporate more resilience into their daily lives. Today's show is sponsored by Navy Federal Credit Union, which has been proudly serving the Armed Forces veterans and their families for over 80 years. And if you're a member of the Armed Forces or the Department of Defense, they'd be proud to serve you, too. Federally insured by NCUA. It all starts when positive parenting for military families continues right after this. This is Mario Andretti. You know me as a race car driver, but I'm also a Meals on Wheels volunteer. I've raced against the sport's biggest personalities, but I've never met more vibrant, amazing people than the seniors served by Meals on Wheels. You can make a difference by dropping off a hot meal and saying a quick hello. So, America, let's do lunch. Volunteer your lunch break at americaletsdolunch.org. This message brought to you by Meals on Wheels America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Jessica Tyson, who's a model supervisor for the FOCUS program, and their website is focusproject.org. Jessica, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I think to, to set the stage, I, I gave a little bit of an introduction to this in, in the introduc- uh, introduction to this segment uh, about resilience and the FOCUS program or FOCUS project. Uh, tell us what that stands for, and then we'll talk about what resilience is all about. Sure. So FOCUS stands for Families Overcoming Under Stress, and it's a resilience training program for military families to help them to manage the challenges that are inherent in the military lifestyle. Okay. And give us a, an overview of what some of those so those challenges are. I mean, there's certainly deployments and there's education, and there's unemployment, but what what are the, the big issues that you find that people need focus for? Absolutely. So families come to us for a variety of reasons. Many times um, there may be some challenges with children having behavioral challenges at school or at home, dealing with different transitions like um, a permanent change of station to a new location and adjusting to just the the social impact of that. And then with the operational tempo, if you have a primary caregiver who is 
out of the home frequently, there can be some challenges with family roles and really just kind of um, being able to support parents and understanding developmental expectations, supporting co-parenting, helping children with being able to identify and express their feelings in, in ways that are helpful and ways that they can engage um, their own resilience uh, as they experience different challenges that come up with military lifestyle. Yeah. Some of our folks are adjusting to being new military families or adjusting to being in new locations. So we really see a pretty wide range. Let's just take a step back, because I think the word resilience is something that gets talked about a lot, and people have certainly heard the word and probably could identify it or, or, or define it. But how are you using the, the word and the concept of resilience, especially for military families? Sure. So we like to think of resilience as um, helping families to be able to adapt and overcome with the challenges that they're faced with. So just really being able to empower them with skills to overcome the, the next challenge, whether it is dealing with school transitions, whether it's dealing um, with adjustments in family roles, whether it's dealing with a marital separation or divorce that the family might be experiencing. So really empowering them with skills to be able to manage and bounce back or recover from um, an upset or a challenge that they experience. Now, I know that there's been a lot of research at Harvard and other places, uh, academic places, looking at resilience and looking at military families and how to deal with that. And I, I definitely want to focus a lot of what we're going to be talking about today uh, specifically about what the training that you have is. But how do military families differ from civilian families in the challenges that they face and the, the level of resilience that they need to deal with those challenges? So I think that the difference with military families um, in comparison to their civilian counterparts is, you know, the very obvious one is uh, the loved one who may de be deployed on a, uh, on a mission that could put their their life in jeopardy. That's definitely a big one that not our, our civilian population would typically experience. Also, the frequent separations due to the, the training that goes on, and then the frequent relocation. Um, I'm a military parent myself, and I have a child who's in eighth grade who's at his ninth school. This wow. is pretty typical for a military child. That's a lot of stuff. And, you know, you, you often hear, or at least I heard this a lot when I was working on, on the book I did for military families called The Military Father, uh, that military families are, are often stronger in some ways. Do you feel that they they have what it takes to cope with these things, or are they just as ill-equipped to deal with challenges as everybody else? I think that uh, military families have a lot of inherent strengths, and that, that duty to serve um, really brings out a lot of those, those qualities. I think that like all families, they experience challenges, and we just want to help to build on the existing strengths that they have. Um, so that's, I think, one of the things that's really nice about the program is it is a prevention program. And a lot of times when I'm discussing this program with service members um, or with military families, I really encourage them to look at it as an opportunity to be proactive 
and really uh, make that parallel between the training that they do um, to maintain their skills in the military, applying that same training application to their family. Well, clearly somebody who's been through what you've been through or what, what your child has been through, the eighth grader's been through nine schools in eighth grade, uh, that requires a lot. I mean, you could see, all right, somebody moves in the middle of a semester and it's a big challenge. I, mean, I remember when I was in third or fourth grade, there was a kid who's whose uh, house had been burned down and he joined us part of the way through. And you think, wow, that's a big, a big challenge and a big stress. But that's once. And, you know, to go from once or twice maybe to eight times, and he's probably not done. Uh, what do you, do you think that, that military families naturally develop a certain amount of resilience? Or Absolutely. I, I think that um, the, the families through their experience, you know, and I've lived overseas also as, as a military um, spouse and uh, worked with families in Okinawa. And sometimes um, with the military, you often are away from your family of origin and those is typical support. So you have to learn to develop your own support system. So that helps these families to really become independent and strong and resourceful um, out, of, out of necessity. And um, what's really amazing is just to see how they can thrive through these challenges. And when they do experience challenges or hiccups um, for a program like FOCUS to be able to provide parent education and um, training for all family members and the perspective taking um, to really help them to um, empathize with one another and support each other in, in making this work. All right. And... I want to, before we get into some of the, the specifics, just tell us a little bit about what your, what your child has had to deal with over the course of his, his nine shifts or nine different schools. So we have lived everywhere from Okinawa to Oklahoma, <laughs> and obviously there's cultural adjustments in between. Um, I mean, even things like sports, you know, sometimes, especially as they get into competitive sports like soccer and tryouts, he may be the new kid on a team of children who've played together for five or six years. Um, so just kind of learning how to be confident and assertive enough to blend in with that new group. And also, you know, on my end, being proactive as a parent to find out um, what activities are going to be available, what, you know, what the new school is going to be like, what things are we going to be able to maintain and keep consistent, um, and what things might be a new opportunity. And just helping to provide that positive frame of the adventure and the, you know, the opportunity to learn or experience something new. I'm talking with Jessica Tyson, who's a model supervisor with the FOCUS program, and we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to start getting into exactly what the FOCUS program is and, and the types of programming and types of, of resources that they have available to help families with resilience issues. I'm Armin Brott, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. It only takes a minute to find out if you may have prediabetes. And you can do it at doihaveprediabetes.org. But you're probably not going to, are you? Kids, work, listening to the radio. You're busy, which is great because busy people can't get prediabetes. Oh my, I read that wrong. <laughs> they can. Should have worn my glasses. So visit doihaveprediabetes.org and take a short test because prediabetes can be reversed. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. 
Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Jessica Tyson, who's a model supervisor with the FOCUS program. And uh, thanks for staying with us. Jessica, uh, what is a model supervisor? I mean, it sounds like you would be a terrific, a wonderful supervisor or the supervisor that everybody should be just like, but it's not that, obviously. Right. So I'm part of our headquarters team, and um, it means that I have the opportunity to provide clinical and administrative supervision to several of our program sites. So I currently work with our folks in Okinawa, Iwakuni, um, San Diego, Naval Base, um, Ventura County, as well as 29 Palms and Barstow, and I provide direct supervision to our folks who are on the ground implementing our model with families and just making sure that we continue to provide best practice to support every military family that engages in our services. And it's across all branches. It sounds like you're you're a little Marine Corps heavy, but is is that uh, you're, you're across all branches? We are. So the program was initially implemented in 2008 through partnership with the Bureau of Navy Medicine and Surgery. So all of the original um, sites were Navy and Marine Corps sites, but through expansion over time, we actually have been able to touch all branches, including the the special ops folks who um, we know also experience a lot of challenges due to the military lifestyle. Well, they especially have the the additional challenge of not being able to talk about what they do nearly as much as everybody else. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So let's let's talk about the very beginning of it. Do you you start off with an assessment and how does somebody get assessed to figure out what sorts of issues they're having or what's where they're a little light on resilience in certain areas and other areas where they may be okay? So the assessment um, occurs in the first session when we meet with the family, and typically families will connect with us either through community events or they might be referred by family readiness personnel or a chaplain or um, a teacher or a provider. Um, so they come in and uh, Participation is always voluntary, Um, so they come in and the assessment offers an opportunity to identify, it it basically gives us a snapshot to identify what the family's strengths are and where maybe there are some opportunities to increase um, closeness within the family or increase um, communication within the family. If the the parents actually answer questions about each of the children within the family, and if there's a significant difference between one parent's report and the other, that's something that I, as a trainer, I'm going to express curiosity about because perhaps there's different perspectives and maybe that's creating some challenges with co-parenting. And so we definitely want to address that first. Okay. And you're saying that this is it's voluntary and they could be referred by someplace else. How would people find out about this otherwise if they if, if somebody just doesn't happen to mention it to them? Say that somebody hasn't had a chance to connect with a family readiness person and they're just thinking, Oh, this is just getting to be too much. Whatever that is. So so um, with our program, we engage a full suite of services that includes giving program briefs. We offer psychoeducation workshops for adults as well as um, for families and children. We um, do some school-based outreach 
and um, we attend a lot of the events on the installation. So to give you an idea, um, when I was the site director in Okinawa from 2010 to 2013, we averaged about 1,200 briefs a year. Um, just, you know, really having that that presence to connect directly with the families. Mm -hmm. And we might have the opportunity to speak with a parent who has a question about a behavior that they're observing at home with their kiddo and they're not sure if this is a typical reaction to the challenge or if this is something that they should be concerned about. And maybe we're kind of doing an informal consultation mm -hmm. and talking to them about how coming in for the individual family training could be helpful. Um, so they could sign up right on the spot and then we would call and schedule that appointment. And then once they come in for the appointment, we talk to them about how the service works with um, a couple of parent sessions, a couple of child sessions, and then bringing the whole family together. So it's a really intentional model where we get the opportunity to meet each, each member of the family. And in that process, they also get the opportunity to create their own narrative because one of the things that we know about families is, you know, even with my own family, we've had, you know, five PCSs. Even though we've experienced those different moves and different changes, including the, the deployments, each of us has a different perspective on those events. And when we can share that experience and have it validated, then we can become more empathic and more supportive of one another and just move forward stronger as a family. Uh, you're dealing with the whole family, which presumably includes the service member himself or herself. How do you deal with the issue of the culture of the military and, and having been in the Marine Corps myself, the, the, the culture of the Marines in particular, or special forces for that matter, uh, mm -hmm. where there's not a lot of asking for help and there's in, in addition to just the, the tough guy part of it, there's also a fear among a lot of people that if, if I ask for help or if I have a PTSD issue or something else that, that might be making it difficult for me to be doing my job in, in the, the best possible way, that somebody will find out about that, that I'll, I'll lose my job or lose my security clearance or whatever else it is, that, that, that reluctance to ask for help for anything that might seem like it's a mental health issue. How do you deal with that? Sure. So that comes up quite a bit. Um, so I think the first thing that I'll say is I think um, one of the strengths of our model is it is a training model. So we're very upfront that there doesn't have to be anything wrong for your family to benefit from this program. And when I'm meeting with that individual family and I'm reviewing those uh, initial uh, assessments that give us kind of a snapshot of how the family's doing, one of the first things I'm going to do is point out the strengths. And I'm also going to rely on the parent report for that or the couple's report for that. Um, and I'm going to help them to understand how this is an opportunity to learn skills that will not only help them with what's going on now, but also future challenges that may come up. Um, one of the things that we may learn in the course of the work um, with the family is maybe there is an individual family member who is in need of clinical services, whether it be a service member who is experiencing some post-traumatic stress symptoms or whether it be um, maybe a spouse who is experiencing some significant depressive symptoms. We have the opportunity to provide the education around why referral could be helpful. And what we do is we 
we go ahead and um, offer the referral. We want to walk them through the different options that are available to them. And then um, if it's not something that they're yet ready to engage, we'll continue to follow up. And oftentimes what we see is that they have a really positive experience with the training for focus. They start to, again, you know, become healthier and more insightful and maybe more open to seeking that referral. So perhaps when they complete the training, we're kind of that nice bridge to another another service that's available. And, and we those, help to destigmatize it. Are those referrals uh, things that are available within the military community that are provided by the Department of Defense or on, on base services? Or are those referrals to off-base civilian-provided services? Um, it can include both. Um, we definitely want to make sure that they're aware of the services that are available on the installation. If there's hesitation around seeking services on the installation, we find it very important um, to be informed about community resources that are available as well. And you're working with the family separately, or is it, or is there some group work also? So for our resilience training model, we work with the individual family um, or the couple because we do also have a couples track um, with our what we call skill building groups. Um, we may work with a group of couples or a group of parents or a group of service members and do group level training. And those often lead to folks um, being interested in pursuing, so if they have a positive experience at a couples communication skill building group, um, you know, with four other couples, and they feel like this is something that could benefit their relationship, they might then um, sign up for the individual couples training, or if they come into a parent group, um, then they might, um, after the parent group, connect with us about individual training for their family. Okay. And the website is focusproject.org. And so somebody's hearing this, or maybe they've heard about focus from somebody else that they know on base or off base. How do they begin to get connected with you and, and go through the assessment to figure out what it is that, that they need and how they can benefit from participating? So what's great is on the website, there's a contact us link that shows the um, contact information for each of our offices at um, their installation. And so they can call directly and um, enroll in the program. And that's how most of our families connect with us, by simply calling the office and saying, you know, I heard about this or someone suggested, my neighbor, my friend said that it was really helpful when they were having some challenges with their kiddo, um, and we go ahead and collect their contact information and schedule that appointment. Okay. Then talking with Jessica Tyson, the model supervisor at the FOCUS program, and again, the website is focusproject.org. Jessica, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You're not wired to have a response to this sound. You're neutral to it. And you can hear it repeatedly without feeling anything. But when we introduce a new stimulus, save the food, we've achieved pulling a natural or inborn response from you. Save the food, because 40% of all food in the US never gets eaten. Save the food. Cook it, store it, share it. Just don't waste it. 
For tips and recipes, visit savethefood.com. Brought to you by NRDC and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, a few years ago, you wrote about the benefits of meditation for children. I honestly thought you were joking, but a counselor at my son's school just recommended it, saying it could help my son's severe anxiety. When I asked how to do it, he handed me a copy of your article. For the benefit of other listeners, would you please review the benefits and how to? Well, thank you for your email. I've been meaning to restart my own meditation practice for a while, I've got to say, and you've just given me the extra motivation boost that I needed. A lot of people, including me, are skeptical when they hear about the benefits of meditation. After all, we're told that when something sounds too good to be true, it usually is. However, in the case of meditation, many of the benefits have been scientifically proven. And it's not just people who've been doing it for 20 years who benefit. In many cases, you can see the results in as little as a week. Over the course of thousands of studies, meditation has been shown to reduce anxiety, depression, and feelings of stress, increase focus and reduce the symptoms of ADD, increase immune system function and reduce inflammation, lower blood pressure and reduce the risk of heart attack and stroke, reduce the amount of sleep you need to feel rested, make your brain bigger and increase your IQ, improve memory recall and lower the risk of developing dementia, boost creativity, reduce the likelihood of becoming addicted to drugs or alcohol, improve your ability to cope with pain, prevent asthma and a variety of conditions that are caused by inflammation in the body, reduce loneliness and social isolation, and overall help you live a longer, healthier life. Whew, that's pretty impressive, isn't it? As someone who's obsessed with research, I wanted to know exactly how something as simply as meditation could possibly produce so many positive outcomes. It turns out that meditating changes blood flow in the brain, increasing it in certain areas, such as the ones that govern memory and social function, and reducing it in other areas, such as the ones that regulate anxiety, stress, and depression. It also changes blood flow in other parts of the body, hence the heart and stroke-related benefits. But at the end of the day, the how and the why aren't really all that important. What really counts is that in addition to the many documented benefits, there have been no documented risks. So why not give it a try? Here's how. Start by making it a regular thing. For kids or adults who are just starting, 5 to 10 minutes once or twice a day is fine. Gradually increase it to 15 to 20 minutes if you're able. Do it together. Everyone in your family can benefit from meditating, so why not make it a regular family activity? Turn off the phone, except for the countdown timer if you're using one. Get comfortable. No contortions or special clothing are required. While you can meditate in the lotus position, you can just as easily do it sitting in a chair, lying down in bed, or walking. Just do it. There are more than a dozen types of meditation. Some, including transcendental meditation, involve focusing your mind on a particular word or phrase called a mantra, but you can just as easily start by focusing on your breath. Slowly count one for the first inhale, hold for two seconds, then exhale. Count two for the next set, and so on. Chances are you won't get to three before your mind starts heading off in 127 different directions at the same time. When that happens, resist the urge to criticize yourself for losing focus. 
This happens to everyone. Just observe that your mind has wandered and gently bring yourself back to your breathing and start counting again. Over time, you'll find that you're able to clear your mind of many of those distractions. If you have a comment or a suggestion or a question for us here at Positive Parenting, please do send it over. You can do that through our website, MrDad.com. We'll be back next week with a brand new show for you. But you know what? There's a lot more of this Positive Parenting show coming right up, so don't go anywhere. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey, there he is. How's it going? I'm having a stroke. Are you going to shake my hand or what? I'm having a stroke. Wow, you're not even moving your arm. I'm having a stroke. Are you okay? I'm having a stroke. Your face looks weird, too. I'm having a stroke. Are you having a seizure or something? I'm having a stroke. When someone is having a stroke, they may not be able to say it with words, but their body language will tell you loud and clear. I'm having a stroke. You just need to know the sudden signs. Look for FAST, F-A-S-T. F, face drooping. A, arm weakness. Or S, speech difficulty. Then T, time. Time to call 911 immediately. Because the sooner they get to the hospital, the sooner they'll get treatment. And that can make a remarkable difference in their recovery. Know the sudden signs. Face, arm, speech, time. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. The first three trimesters, and the fourth, which is those blurry newborn days, those are for the baby. But the fifth trimester is when the working mom is born. No matter what the job or how you define work, you're going to have a lot of questions. And whether you're in the final stages of pregnancy or you're hitting the panic button on your last day of leave, what you need are some strategies that will help you embrace your new identity as a working parent and set yourself up for success. Well, the good news is that that's exactly what you're going to get in this part of today's show. My guest is an expert in helping parents and businesses collaborate to create more family-friendly workplace cultures. And she's got an awful lot to say about everything that goes into this entire fifth trimester. It all starts, of course, with going back to work and trying to find childcare. And we'll talk about what she's found in going through all of the research that there is out there on the effects of a mother's going back to work on her children. Some people say it's good, some people say it's bad, and the conclusion is kind of inconclusive. We'll also talk about some of the differences between the way that men and women experience their own fifth trimesters and what exactly constitutes equality. I'm Armin Brott. We'll start talking about the fifth trimester when Positive Parenting continues right after this. It may be hard to believe, but people just like you are already saving money. FeedThePig.org makes it easy. Their simple savings plan teaches you how to start saving without going overboard. So you don't need to sell all your belongings and live in a commune. These dungarees belong to all of us now, Tom. You don't need to get a second job as a stuntman. We need a new stuntman! 
You just need feedthepig.org. Don't get left behind. Get tips and tools at feedthepig.org. Brought to you by the American Institute of CPAs and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Lauren Smith Brody, who's the author of The Fifth Trimester, The Working Mom's Guide to Style, Sanity, and Success After Baby. Lauren, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. All right, so The Fifth Trimester, so that is roughly starting with about three months of age, if we're counting trimesters as three months. Exactly, yeah. So the first three months of pregnancy the fourth trimester, and it may be shorter, it may be longer, depending on um, how much parental leave you have away from your job. But um, it's the idea that, you know, human babies are born um, a trimester too early. And so along with that goes the idea that you wake, you know, your baby wakes up to the world right around 12 weeks and becomes a real baby. And of course, if you have, if you qualify for FMLA, that is exactly when you are going back to work. Um, if, if, you know, in some cases you probably may even have already been back at work for, you know, a month or so at that point. Yeah, depending on whether you have coverage or paid leave or unpaid leave exactly. or whether you've got a, a exactly. it depends and on even, all sorts of things. Even if you qualify for paid leave or even if you qualify for unpaid leave, FMLA, I should say, uh, you know, a, a very small percentage of the population is actually able to take the full amount of leave unpaid because who can afford to not be paid <laughs> for a quarter of their year? Yes. So um, many, many American moms are going back to work before they're emotionally and physically ready to be there. Um, I know I that was the case for me. And yet having gotten through it, once I was on the other side of what I call the fifth trimester, it did feel, um, in fact, like a developmental phase. Only this one was for mom, and there was a lot that I got out of the experience that was trying at the time, but that ultimately has helped me have real perspective on kind of all transitions of working motherhood. Okay, and so what does it start with? I mean, you, you start you start the book. I mean, chapter one is who's taking care of your little person. One would hope that you've had these conversations long before the 12th week of, of your baby's life. Oh, sure, of course. Yeah. I mean, my assumption writing this book is that, you know, hopefully, um, you know, women are receiving it at baby showers or in time to, um, you know, to read it in time to prepare. But that decision around childcare is um, the reason it leads the book is because it is, you know, it's the fundamental decision you're making that oh, is going to yeah. make everything else work, right? Um, and, you know, we do not have universal child care here in America. And, uh, and so it's something that requires a lot of juggling. And it is also, you know, one of the big reasons that a lot of women drop out of the workforce is because when they find out what they're going to have to pay for child care, suddenly the math they do in their head on their own salary doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, and part of what I want to help achieve with this book and with this community of mothers helping each other is to understand that if you do stay in the workplace, you can um, change policies from within to ultimately benefit um, other other working moms as well. Um, but the childcare, so I really, um, my own experience was that my husband and I um, had a nanny in our home. It was um, a big financial stretch, to be totally honest, in that moment. My husband was in his medical residency, and I was an editor at a magazine. Um, and it was kind of the only thing in New York City at that time that worked, worked for the hours that we needed to work. 
Um, so we had to make it work financially, and it was it was a big stretch. Um, so that was my bias coming in. So I did a lot of research about other approaches to childcare, of course, because that you know I needed to make sure that other moms felt like you know they could they could see their options. And there were so many more out there than I had even thought of initially. So obviously, you know, there's also daycare and there's au pairs. Um, but a lot of what I learned was about people who kind of cobble together different versions of making it work, whether it is, you know, mom works from home one day or has, you know, works a four-day week, dad works a four-day week, and then maybe mom, mother-in-law lives one town over and comes in for a day, but everyone kind of had their own combination of making it work. And when I looked at the research in terms of what is most beneficial to, to baby, to, you know, baby's sort of long-term health and development, I was really surprised because there was no definitive answer about, you know, it even necessarily being better for mom to be home with baby oh, yeah. or relative. Yeah. It, what it really boiled down to was was mom's comfort, mom's emotional comfort mm-hmm. with the childcare decision that she and her partner were making together. Right. And so right. that is what really led all of the research that I did. Yeah, that whole thing about the it, – it's really frustrating, and I imagine it's it's probably a little bit more frustrating as a mother because mothers tend to be the focus of this. But it's like yeah. the, the studies keep, come in waves. There's there's one that says that kids who go who, whose mothers go back to work right away are fine. And yeah. then there's another one a few years later that says kids whose mothers go back to work right away grow up to be serial killers. Oh and, no! You know, that one does not. That does not exist. Well, okay, that, that study way. does not exist. Well, you know what I mean. But I mean, you know, it, yes, it, it yes. points out all sorts of of, of terrible yes. consequences, which makes everybody feel terrible on either end of it. I mean, either yes. you should be or you shouldn't be. Well, and, and dads, dads are feeling the same thing. I mean, as as yes. more and more dads are taking on a greater responsibility, they're they're feeling the the same sort of guilt. That is why I said the study that I'm citing actually was a compendium of, I think, almost a thousand studies. So it was really meant to be kind of the definitive look at the ones who said serial killer and the ones who said, like, you know, the kid is great um, to to kind of really boil it down. But the irony being that the the definitive answer is that there is no answer. (laughs) No, the, the definitive answer really is it's about the parent's emotional comfort with their decision, because if they're comfortable with it, their child is going to feel that. So the question right. is not, you know, how do I get, you know, mentally healthy about this? It's, it's you know, how am I, am I making a decision that is not just necessarily logistically comfortable for me, but that emotionally feels like the right choice to make? Well, that could really I, you know, lead you. I mean, if you, if you go back to work and you spend all of your time looking at the nanny cam or... Yeah. You know, worrying about everything, you're not going to be particularly effective at work and they're right. not going to be very happy to have you back. Right. Well, the studies, the studies that look at um, uh, mothers in particular, but new parents' success in the workplace transitioning back to work after baby are, um, there are several of them that really are about focus. And focus is really the predictor of whether or not you're able to succeed. So if you can focus, you're going to do well. So I did a lot of looking in the book at what it takes for you to, to feel focused and to be able to turn your attention to the work at hand. Focused at work, you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. And then you talk about the second cutting of the cord. Yeah. yeah. Which, uh, which I, I love the, the per- parenthetical afterwards. This Sorry, one you feel. graphic. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like everything about childbirth is graphic. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so that is, you know, your first, your first day and your first weeks back at work, which can feel um, obviously like a huge transition, even for someone who has been very ambitious and who's really comfortable with their job. If you're going back to work with, after having had a new baby, it is in many ways your first day on the job as a new working parent. And, um, with that comes uh, a sea change for a lot of women um, in terms of their sort of how they, their identity, um, how they feel about themselves. 
um, and also all of the feelings they may have about what happened um, while they were away and who who covered for them, who didn't cover for them, you know, um, all of the things you really haven't had a lot of time to think about. You're suddenly hit in a big wave with coming back. Um, and so there are a lot of um, there are a lot of very simple pieces of advice that, that can work well here. You know, come back and, and treat it. You probably aren't coming back to an enormous, you know, um, backlog of work because things have been handled, like the world didn't stop spinning while you were out. So if you can take the first, you know, couple of days and treat them almost as if you would a brand new job and that you're going to go and have one-on-one -on -one conversations with kind of all the little, all the people in your orbit, um, that can really help you catch up very quickly and, and, um, decipher, you know, what is something important that happened while you were away that requires following up on, and what is something that you, that might be interesting or might not feel so great that it happened while you were away, but that you can just let go for the sake of looking forward to the future and moving forward in your job. Now, I'm curious, one of the chapters I, I, I you know, get because I'm doing so many interviews with, with parenting authors, spend an awful lot of time reading these things, Yeah. And uh, but there, there are interesting differences that show up between men and women, and, and one of these chapters here... Uh, on, on looking human again about, yeah. about beauty. I think, wow, that's not something you're going to find in many. I, I certainly have never written about that as a dad. Because, uh, sure. you know, it, it, it's something that, for better or worse, is is not the way that men are evaluated. We, no, we're true. evaluated in, you know, what's going on on the other side of our, our pants. Um, <laughs> The, the wallet, the wallet side. Well, I mean. also it is it is the you know the distinction of you know if you have if this is a child you have carried you know as a mom yourself, then you know your body has been through a lot of changes that can, yeah. like it or not, can impact how you feel about yourself and what you project to the world. And I have to admit that you know coming from I, I was working at a women's magazine, I was working at Glamour magazine when I had both of my children, and writing this book in some ways felt like. Um, moving beyond sort of the superficial and really looking deeply. And the truth is, is I, I discovered very quickly just in my interviews with these hundreds of moms and in looking at the research too, that there's no getting around the physical change that happens. And if you're coming back to work before you feel physically ready to be there and emotionally ready to be there, you better believe you have to kind of protect yourself and how it's going to show yeah. up on in the way you look and in the way you present yourself talking with Lauren Smith Brody, who's the author of The Fifth Trimester, The Working Mom's Guide to Style, Sanity, and Success After Birth. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Lauren. I want to get into some of the things she talked about, about how, to, how women can make things better for other women in the workplace. I'm Armin Brott, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott this from the MrDad.com radio network. If you're pregnant and you smoke, you need to know that your risk of your baby being born too small is one and a half to three and a half times greater. By quitting now, your baby has a better chance to be born at a normal weight and to have healthy lungs. But it's also important for you to stay smoke-free after your baby's born. For free materials on quitting or to speak to a quit coach, call the National Quit Line at 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the U.S. Public Health Service. My name's Tyler, and in nine years, I'll be an alcoholic. I'll start drinking in middle school, just at parties. But my parents won't start talking to me about it till high school. Kids who drink before age 15 are five times more likely to have alcohol problems when they're adults. The thing is... 
My parents won't even see it coming. So start talking before they start drinking. To learn more, go to StopAlcoholAbuse.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Ad Council, and this station. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brott. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Lauren Smith-Brody, the author of The Fifth Trimester, The Working Mom's Guide to Style, Sanity, and Success After Birth. And at the very beginning of the show, you were talking about how one of your goals was to help women to get to a point where they can help other people, other women, other other men who are going to benefit from this as well. Absolutely, uh, yeah. From, from these programs, because as you... you just said it in, in almost a throwaway that we, we don't have a family leave policy that governs the, the entire country, as so many other countries do. So Correct. we really have to do this on a grassroots level until somewhere along the line somebody decides to to get their head out of their... Right. Yeah. <laughs> out, of, out of something we can't talk about on air. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, yeah. So, so you know, what I like to say is that, you know, so pregnancy in particular, and, and obviously this book is it's meant for adoptive parents as well, for any approach to motherhood, any approach to career. But, you know, so pregnancy in the workplace is probably the most physical, personal life need you will ever see among your coworkers, right? But the truth is, is everyone has a personal life, no matter if they have children, if they don't have children. You might have, you know, an older parent who requires some elder care, a spouse or a partner who, you know, gets ill, or even just something in your own life, your mental health, or, you know, uh, even something really positive, like a charity that you really want to support, or some, some work that you're doing outside of work that's important to you. And in solving for these issues for new parents, what we're actually doing is making people more comfortable with the idea that there's not such a separation anymore between work and personal. If you want to do really good work, you're going to do it in a personal way, and you're going to bring some of your personal life to work, and that's going to be okay. Because believe me, those same people are definitely answering emails at 10 o'clock at night when they are technically at home on their couch. Um, And so when we solve things for parents, what we really do is solve everyone's personal life needs in the workplace. And so one thing I tell new mothers who are coming back if they're not feeling great about themselves, if they feel like, and and they are in many, many, many ways more capable, but if they're not feeling more capable in that moment, if they're having to go back before they feel ready to be there, to know that even if you are just stumbling through, even if you're messing up along the way, even if it's just, you know, one foot in front of the other is the best you can do in those, those weeks and months that you're first coming back, you are doing some good because you are being transparent about the challenges of new working parenthood. In your, in your workplace, and that will ultimately move culture forward for the better because we can't solve problems if they're not visible. We have right. to know there's a need before your well-intended colleagues and bosses can help make things better. Now, what do you tell people who have to deal with the – it's not exactly a backlash, but I know that – I've heard from, from people who don't have kids that there's yeah. so much focus on the Family Medical Leave Act and, and the parenting thing and maternity leave and paternity leave and – or parenting leave, or whatever it is, or adoptive parents, that there's so much focus on the kids. And as you said, everybody has a personal life, but when the policies are couched, or the approaches are couched as a parenting thing, Mm -hmm. there there are people who don't have kids who are going to feel left out, and who are going to feel some resentment, I think in some ways justifiably so, that their needs are not being taken care of, or or not being accommodated to the same extent that parents are. Uh, But I would... I would tell them to be vocal. I would absolutely, you know, everyone I interviewed for this book 
told, oh, not everybody, but a lot of people I interviewed with book told me stories of other people in their workplace who didn't have children who needed to ask for something too, and in some ways that actually emboldens them. And it's really the same. It's really the same answer. When we make things better for parents, we will make things better for everybody. One thing I do tell new moms coming back, and I believe me, the last thing I want to do is give anybody a to-do list coming back to work. Your to-do list is already too long, but. If you can find, I hate the word bandwidth, if you can find the bandwidth to do to do one thing, one kindness that tends to the personal life of someone in your workplace who does not also have a small child, and this might be somebody who has a kid in college or children who are grown, do something that just lets you help that other person in some way to show, hey, this is not just about the fact that I was pregnant and had a baby. This is about the fact that we're all human, and thank you so much for helping me when I was out, and please know I'm going to help you too. Okay. You know, you talk in the book about science uh, in, in many places, but one thing I was particularly intrigued by was the science of working through sleep deprivation, which was yeah. done, done by the military. And I, I can see that from the other side, because as years ago, it seems like a previous life, I was in the Marine Corps, and my job was mm. an interrogator translator. And, wow. But, it, but the interrogation part, I mean, one thing you learn is sleep deprivation is a form of torture. I mean, Absolutely. literally a form of torture. Yeah. You, know, you, want, you want to just be horrible to somebody. You can keep them awake forever. And so I, I'm, I'm intrigued by what you have to say about working through sleep deprivation. How do you do yeah. that? Well, so like everything else in this book, I really took the approach of this is, not, this is not a parenting book. It's not a baby care book. It's really a book to take care of yourself so you can take care of your child. So I'm never going to tell anybody how to, how to get their baby to sleep because far be it from me. And you can find a sleep train, don't sleep train, whatever's going to work for your baby, fine. But the one thing I could do is I could ask experts in maternal sleep about how do you work through sleep deprivation. And primarily, the best thing you can do is to, to acknowledge that if you're not sleeping yet, that whatever little sleep you're getting really needs to count. And so the way to do that is to protect the hour, particularly the hour before you go to sleep at night, to you know, make, it, make it screen free, to dim the lights if you have dimmers. If you don't have dimmers, get them. It's worth it. Um, and to really set your body into getting ready to sleep mode so that once you do fall asleep for whatever couple of hours you're going to get, that they're really good hours. So there's that. And there's also a lot of information about if you um, – if you're up in the night with the baby, first of all, how to share some of that time with your partner. If you are fortunate enough to have a partner, use that partner. Please try not to think of yourself if you are home on maternity leave and your spouse is, is back at work already, which is often the case. You, know, you have to remember that the work you're doing taking care of a human baby the next day is actually vital, incredibly important work. And yeah. so with the wake-ups. Yeah. You will both be better off if you split the wake-ups. There's all kinds of studies that show that it's actually protective of the relationship yeah. for dad to participate in that. And then once you're at, in the workplace, if you aren't sleeping yet, this is sort of counterintuitive, but the, um, one of the experts I spoke to suggested the idea that, you know how you all, everybody gets kind of tired after lunch. There's that slump that happens around 2 o'clock. So if you aren't sleeping yet then and sleeping through the night yourself, then obviously you feel that you know more than anyone. Um, and what you can do is actually, if you have enough control over your schedule, try to plan something during that time that actually requires adrenaline. So if you know that you're going to have to make an important phone call, if you know that you're going to have to be on in a meeting in some way, schedule it for after lunch because you will get a natural burst of adrenaline mm -hmm. that will carry you through yeah. the afternoon. 
Yeah, I want to go back to the wake up thing though, because you you yeah. said the word split the wake up, which yep. I thought was mm-hmm. was. I want to get your take on this. I teach classes for expectant fathers, and one of the things I tell them is, to the extent possible, don't yeah. get up in the middle of the night and do the do this stuff with your partner. Have her pump some bottles, yeah. so that you can do a couple of the feedings, and she can get some sleep, and then yeah. she does. You know, so you don't have to get up. So she while she's pumping these bottles, you can get some sleep. Um, so you end up with two people who are really, really tired, but they're not sleep deprived. And there is, at least in what I've looked at, there's a clinical difference there, which happens somewhere around four or five hours of sleep. If you can't get that on a regular basis, you're going to be nuts. Yeah. We've, so we've obviously looked at the exact same stuff. So it really, the protective amount of sleep is two REM cycles, which is about four hours. And so the best thing you can do is to get two whole nights sleep yourself and for your partner to get two whole nights sleep him or herself too. But the sort of second best is to get two REM cycles. So one of you, you know, puts the earplugs in. If you can have another space to sleep in, great, um, and get those four hours. Um, And if one of you is a night person and one of you is a morning person, use that to your advantage. You know, maybe mom goes to bed at 9 o'clock at night and dad stays up and does a midnight bottle, and then mom doesn't have to be up again until 1 or 2. But you really have to be good communicators and and honest about the fact that this is not one person's job versus the other and the um the pumping that you were talking about is is what makes it really complicated for a lot of parents obviously but you know for the, once you're once you're in a rhythm and once you've got you know the first few weeks under your belt it is possible to pump at least one bottle and, yeah. and get that four hours right we only have less than a minute but i want you just to to talk about the equality thing and yeah. equality not being 50% right down the middle, but being kind of what you talked about. If somebody's a morning person, somebody's an afternoon person, yeah. take advantage of, of the things that you might be more naturally gravitating towards. Right. And don't gatekeep. That is the big message for moms. And I am I am like raising my hand here sitting at my desk talking to you because I'm so guilty but I'm getting better. But, you know, there's a there's a disparity that happens when mom is home on leave longer than dad. Mom becomes an expert at it all. And then when you both go when you're both back at work and you get home at the end of the day, mom wants to do it all herself. and doesn't want dad to and wants it done her way. And yep. that is not sustainable over the course of a marriage. So you've got to try to, you know, yeah. knock some of these patterns early. Lauren Smith Brody is the author of The Fifth Trimester, The Working Mom's Guide to Style, Sanity and Success After Baby. Lauren, thanks so much. Thank you very much for having me on. And thanks very much to Navy Federal Credit Union for supporting today's show. They've been proudly serving the Armed Forces Department of Defense veterans and their families for over 80 years. Federally insured by NCUA. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.